Ultra. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. We ask a passing waiter, Is one sacrifice too great for a chance at immortality? And the waiter responds, Yes, sir. Deep stuff. Anyway, we're remaking the Humphrey Bogart movie In a Lonely Place with Diane Bloom. So, Diane, is In a Lonely Place a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? It's never been remade. Um, It's considered a classic noir, one of the best ones ever made. And I don't know if it should be remade, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. If it's a classic noir and people hold it up as, like, the epitome of, well, this is noir, that's kind of sort of thing that occasionally gets, like, well, you know what? Let's give it another go. It's Bogart, though, so I think there's like this, some some stigma in Hollywood about remaking bogey movies just because he was so Bogart, Humphrey Bogart. Have has there ever been a remake of a Humphrey Bogart movie? I actually don't think so. Interesting. Well, because I remember when uh, we did a remake last year of the Charlie Chaplin movie, and even when I was rewatching The Kid, which was some years ago, I remember being surprised that there hadn't been a remake. Just because it, it certainly the kid is iconic, but it's Charlie Chaplin, and but that's basically the reason it is Charlie Chaplin. And also, it's so iconic. Yeah, and I didn't do a Charlie Chaplin movie. I did a Buster Keaton movie, and my brain got turned around. But we did Sherlock Junior. But actually, Buster Keaton has been remade. Oh yeah, yeah. Project A Part One and Project A Part Two, the Jackie Chan movies that he made in Hollywood, uh-huh. are actually remakes of Sherlock Junior. Not Sherlock Junior. Steamboat Bill Junior. And another Buster Keaton movie. So he remakes a lot of the stunts. He re he redoes a lot of the stunts that Buster Keaton did in those movies, uh, including the house falling on you and right. things like that. That kind of makes sense because I can kind of see Jackie Chan as being a modern equivalent of Buster Keaton, of the person who does his own stunts and they're ridiculous and yeah, you don't see it happening. And a lot of a lot of the Jackie Chan early early movies that he did in Hong Kong, he did as. He he copied a lot of the silent stunts from Harold Lloyd to Buster Keaton. I mean, that's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah, you don't think about that. Like, he's the closest equivalent I can think of now, but of course, even he's now in his 60s or 70s. Well, when Jackie Chan started, he came out of the Peking Opera. Right. Which was all stunts. But when I say he's the modern Buster Keaton... Yeah, he's 60 or 70. There's no one else doing that stuff. Yeah, it's... There are... Because at this point, it's like, there's CGI. Yeah. So the CGI said they don't have to ri- do it. Why risk your life? Exactly. Why break your neck, which Jackie Chan has done twice. Se- several times, yeah. But before we get too far into In a Lonely Place, hi, Dan. Welcome back to uh, Ideal Remake. This is your fourth time? Fourth, I think so, because there was Space Jam. Space Jam, Hackers, Ronin, and uh, Wanted. Oh, so, so this th- must be your fifth. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Do I get a prize? You're not the person who's been on the show the most. That's still Kevin Mosteller. Okay. Uh, but for audiences who haven't listened to those episodes, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Diane Bloom. I've been in Hollywood for about 15 years. I started working as an assistant and worked my way up to director of development in a company. Um, I've worked for Academy Award producers. I've worked for producers who make giant, huge 
blockbuster stunt movies with lots and lots of CGI, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> and I've made some very small movies. So I've done kind of the whole gamut and I've worked in TV as well. And then I decided to kind of break out on my own, do some producing on my own, but I've been writing mostly for the last couple of years. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. I like it. When I first started asking you if you wanted to be on the show, I think your first pitch was In a Lonely Place. Yes. And then we kind of did a couple other movies along the way, and now we're actually finally talking about In a Lonely Place. What What, what is it about this movie that, that interests you so much? I remember seeing it for the first time and going, wow. And just, like, my mouth dropped. It was one of, It's one of those times, you know, like the first time you come out from backstage onto a theater and you sort of get the chills running down your back because you're like, I'm sort of seeing this whole thing from the beginning and, you know, from the outset and now I'm looking out from the stage to the audience and it's yeah. just this cool feeling. Uh-huh. I got that same way the first time I walked on a film set, the first time, you know, I walked into a film class, the first time I saw a film that just really moved me and this film just touched me immensely. The acting, the directing, the cinematography, everything in there is so good that you just kind of, you go, yeah, that's how you should do it. That makes sense. I feel like I, the next question I obviously need to ask you in particular is, how old were you when you saw this movie? Oh, geez. Uh, well, there's a reason he's asking me that, and that's because the first movie <laughs> I ever saw in my entire life was A Clockwork Orange. That is correct. That's why I'm asking this. Yes. So I was <laughs> in how, college. And how old were you when you saw A Clockwork Orange? Three, three and a half. Cool. Next question. Um, <laughs> I must have been. I must have been about 25 when right, I first but, saw but you, this. But you were in college. I was in college. All right. I was in college. Uh, I, I know your uh, family is a fan of noir movies, and so this wasn't like one of those required viewing things when you were a child. No, that was more Gerard Depardieu movies in the French re, French New Wave films. And Fair. as long as someone was naked in those, it was good. <laughs> but let's talk about In a Lonely Place, sure. because I was having a conversation with a couple other film people I know, and I mentioned this movie and they didn't necessarily know about it. So I feel like this movie is really well known in noir circles, but not as well known when it comes to Humphrey Bogart. Is that true or am I just wrong? I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I think for Bogart, you know, there's Maltese Falcon, there's Casablanca, there's uh, Sierra Madre, and everyone kind of just goes, oh, those are the best ones ever kind of thing. But I think In a Lonely Place is, is amazing because it gives it a performance from Bogart that he doesn't really do a lot. He's he's an angry character, but he's also very vulnerable in this. Yeah. And it's not something that he normally did. This also, like, even within the world of the movie, I think they established that this movie is lower budget. And, the, and part of what made me think that is, and it's possible it's just because it was a noir it was like this, but literally in the movie, when... Humphrey Bogart plays a writer in this movie and he's talking to uh, Mildred Atkinson about this potential project he's going to be working on. And she says, do you think they'll get to do it in Technicolor? Gosh, I really hope that like a, a really good movie deserves to be in Technicolor. And the movie we're currently watching was in black and white and not in Technicolor. So that felt like either a self dig at the movie or an acknowledgement that this movie was uh, a cheaper production than what others might be. I think they play, they do a lot of playing with the meta of the movie a lot mm -hmm. and a lot of digs at Hollywood within this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I think it's a very insider movie, which makes it difficult. Yes. And a lot of times insider movies in Hollywood don't really translate to the rest of the world. But Hollywood always loves the insider movie. Like yes. a, a movie made by Hollywood about Hollywood. They love that. This got a lot of accolades. I would imagine. So it's very good. It's very good. And I think, um, 
But there, but yeah, she's right though. You know, maybe they can make it in Technicolor. He's like, well, sure, they'll make it in Technicolor because that's not as good as black and white at the time. You know, it's gaudy. Ah. It's gaudy. It's for you know the masses. So then I misread that. I miss. I saw Technicolor as being a more expensive movie, but it really is. that it just makes it more commercial. Yes, and a true art movie is in black and white, according to the the nature of this movie. Right, and Humphrey Bogart being a true art artist. Couldn't care less for a Technicolor movie. He wants uh-huh. his movies to be arty. Got it. I understand. Yeah. But also make a lot of money because that makes him very happy. Well, sure. He uh, That's all he wants. He wants people to compliment him and tell him he's great and wonderful. We should probably go over the plot vaguely yeah. of this movie. Sure. Do you want to take that? Yeah. And then you can pick up when I go, huh, I wonder where I'm going now. Fair enough. All so, yours. Movie starts with Bogart driving down probably Sunset Boulevard, I think. It's a movie, so yes. Yeah, so it's Sunset Boulevard. He's driving down and he pulls into his, and he just looks angry when he drives. You know, he's kind of like swerving in and out and he's just, you know, it's just, it's an interesting shot because it sort of sets up the whole tone of the movie. It's not like a very happy driving movie. It's, you know, this guy's angrily driving through Hollywood and he pulls up to his regular restaurant. He gets out. And even before that, he gets stopped on the side of the road by a woman who's like, you uh, wrote the last picture I was in. And she was talking with him. And then the guy she's with in the car is like, what are you doing talking to my broad? And it's like, A, dude, bro, she was talking to me. And B, we're in, what do you think? Are you this, is your fragile masculinity this fragile that you can't stand uh, the woman you're with to be talking to another man super casually? But no, they don't say that. Humphrey Bogart instead challenges him to a fight and suggests they get out of the car right now in the middle of the road. Yes, to which he does actually get out of the, halfway get out of the car, the other car just speeds off. Yeah, because Humphrey Bogart is, as we learn, a very angry man and very volatile. Yes, which we pick up exactly in the next scene where he punches out the son of a studio exec because he insulted his favorite actor friend who's also a drunk. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the son of a studio exec who was just, who literally walked into a bar in Hollywood just proudly announcing, well, I just got a bunch of congratulations because I wrote this amazing movie and everyone was complimenting me. In Pasadena. In Pasadena. Yeah. Does that mean that it wasn't because it was a, a less good screening area? Not necessarily, but people, they do do, again, it's an insider dig at Hollywood because Please. people do a lot of screenings and stuff in Pasadena and the Valley because you can get audiences there. Ah, okay. And you're not going to get, it's sort of like that's considered more of, of the people Got than it. say a screening you're going to get in Hollywood. It's so, like with stand-up when people say, the when you start doing stand-up, don't do stand-up in Los Angeles or New York because... When you'll be performing to rooms full of just other stand-ups. And you want to be performing in other places because you'll get actual audiences. Yeah. And that's how you'll actually uh, learn your craft. Yeah, so to this day, Hollywood does most of its screenings in the Valley and in Pasadena and places like that because that's of the people as opposed to doing it in Hollywood. That makes sense? Yeah. Um, so anyway, what happens next? He punches out the guy and you realize that it's a regular occurrence because the maitre d' comes up to him and says, just t- take it outside next time. Yeah. You know, so he, ha- you know, he has a few drinks. He meets. Why him. is he in the bar? He's in the bar. To, I'm trying to think. He's in the bar to meet the producer who wants him to read the book. Yes. He's in the uh, bar to meet the producer and his agent who want him to read this book and write the movie based on the book. Yes. Um, the coat check-in girl had the copy of the book and is almost done with it. Yes. And she just loves it. 
best um, thing ever. And this is one of the best performances in the movie. Oh, she's so good. Because she sets it up. She sets it up so well because you're not expecting the whole sort of tonal shift that happens. Right. And we'll get to that in a second. Right. But her presence in the movie really just disarms the viewer. Yeah, because she's just sweet and wonderful and kind. And um, what happens is, is Humphrey Bogart doesn't want to read the movie. He, he does want to read the movie. He doesn't want to read the book. He doesn't want to write the movie. But he recognizes that he hasn't had a hit in a while. And this is a really good way to kind of guarantee a hit and also make some money, which he also needs. Yes. But he's pretty contemptuous of the book. Yes. Even having not read it, has no desire to read the book. So in lieu of having to read the book, the hatchet girl who's now finished the book and presents it to him. I have done, I have read this book and it is just magnificent, sir. He's like, great, come home with me and tell me the story. And of course, there's a second of... You're not actually just, this isn't a weird line, is it? He's like, no, no, I'm not trying to sleep with you. I genuinely just want you to tell me what the book is so I personally don't have to read it so that I can pass on it uh, saying that I've done my due diligence. Yes. So she goes home with him. Which which is where we get introduced to uh, to Laurel Gray the first time as she passes them as they go into Humphrey Bogart's, yeah. as, go into Dixon's uh, apartment. Right. Dixon Steele and Laurel Gray. Great names. Great. N- They're the same name. They are. Neither is black or white. That's steel and gray. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good it's a good name. I didn't the- realize that I mean, I didn't realize that was their names until I was like doing the recasting. I pulled the names off IMDb and I was like, yeah, that's on the yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Mildred Atkinson I think steals this the entire next portion of the movie. Yes. So Mildred Atkinson is super duper sweet and she's telling him about the uh she's narrating the book and, and telling it in great detail and oh, she clearly loved this story and, and she mispronounces everything <laughs> i don't Which, even remember that yeah she's like um altia as opposed to althea and she talks about biology or something as opposed to a biologist uh. and i mean she's mispronouncing everything in the book and um dick's humphrey bogart's character is just sort of going along with it and being really condescending to her the whole time. Which is a shame because she literally canceled a date with her boyfriend at the time to, to to tell this story because she's like, I won't ever get to be in the movies, but at least I can say when I see this movie that I told the writer about the book and that's how it became a movie. And she was so excited at just like even that tangential relation that she was willing to cancel her date in order to do it. Right, but again, they also play with our expectations there because he goes off, he takes off his shoes, he puts on a dinner jacket, he puts on a sleeping jacket, and she's just like, this looks weird. He's like, no, 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 I'm just getting ready to work. Yeah. So once again, it's playing with our expectations that he's going to do something malicious to her. Right, because at the end of the day, what we know is if anyone invites you back to their hotel room or their apartment for any meeting whatsoever, don't do it. And as Harvey Weinstein has proven to us, you don't necessarily want to be in the same room with a guy who's in a robe. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. But while Mildred is telling the story, Dixon Steele looks out his window uh, at Laurel Gray and she sees him in the apartment. He sees her and they kind of just acknowledge each other. They don't really know each other, but they're like kind of checking each other out from across uh, across the... Courtyard. Courtyard, that's the word I wanted. Thank you. Yep. So... That meeting happens, and then Dixon Steele says he's kind of tired, and he sends Mildred on her way. Yeah, and this is the crux of the situation. He doesn't drive her home like he should, like a gentleman would. Yeah. He gives her 10 bucks for a taxi and shoes her out, says there's a taxi stand two blocks away. Yeah, he says, uh, you 
single woman in the middle of Hollywood, go walk a couple blocks to the taxi stand. You'll be fine. Here's a couple bucks for your trouble. Yeah. So then what happens, Diane? He goes to, he passes out. Yeah, yeah. He, he goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. Um, he wakes up the next morning. It's five o'clock in the morning. And his friend, the police, police sergeant, is banging on his door going, hey, wake up. I got to talk to you. Yeah. It turns out Mildred has been moitered. Yep. Um, and their number one suspect right now is Dix. The guy who everyone saw her leave with and go back to his apartment. This <laughs> Hollywood writer with an interesting reputation. And a volatile temper. And a volatile temper, which at the time we don't, we were introduced to at the beginning, but then it kind of goes away because what happens next is Dixon Steele says the only person who can really account for his presence is this neighbor, Laurel Gray. So he suggests that the police call her into the police station to verify, to be his alibi. And she is, she says he was there. She says she saw, she definitely saw him because she was kind of checking his house checking his him out because she likes his face true but it's also a little interesting in that her alibi for him isn't exactly true because she says she saw she saw her leave which she didn't she made out a scene mildred leave we don't know that it's a little dicey the alibi she sort of says yeah i saw them together yeah she left alone she was alive everything's fine don't worry about it but again she saw him through the window when he was in his window but you don't let you know if she sat there and watched the whole process. Correct. Um, yes. So while it's possible she was still on her balcony that whole time, we don't know. Her whole alibi has always been a little, let's say, gray. Cute. Thank you. Yeah. But what ends up happening is the other problem is that Dixon kind of has a blase attitude to this whole thing. He's kind of like making jokes, which if I was in a high stress situation, I'd do the exact same thing. So that really spoke to me. But then you wouldn't do what Dixon does next. Yeah, he's invited to dinner with his friend, the detective, uh, and the detective's wife, who I neglected to recast, actually. That's too bad. Oh, I did. And Uh Yeah, all yours then. And uh, they're like, well, how do you think this would have happened? Which is one of the scariest things I have ever seen portrayed on film. And so good. And Bogart is amazing in this scene. Well, tell us what happens. Bogart basically makes the couple, the detective and his wife, reenact the murder. How he would have done it had he done the murder. Yeah. So he has the detective put his arm around his put his arm around his wife's neck. And, and say, choke her with the elbow instead of with his hands. Yes. And the wife says, Well, I would have just tried to scratch his eyes out and Bogart says, But you didn't. Yeah. Your your hands immediately instinctively went to try to pull the arm off and you couldn't do it. Yeah. And that's how it would have worked. And it's He's like, my writer brain can just see all these things. And it's like, yeah, but that's still really specific. Everyone's writer brain's a little bit different. Interesting. Yeah. So he's definitely suspect number one. But over the course of the next little bit, he and Laurel Gray start beginning a romance. Yes. And it's very good. It's pleasant. They're both doing very well. It's like, he's writing again. He's writing the movie based on the book. He's drinking less. He's drinking less. Yes. Which is always good. And basically, it is definitely the rose-colored glasses of a new relationship. Yes. Where Laurel's starting to hear these stories about how he's behaved with other women and other people, and she's dismissing them because she's not he's not that way with her. Right. But then she starts being called in to meet with the cops, and he starts being suspicious of that. 
Well, I think that sets up the whole situation, which begins the downfall of their relationship. When she's called into the cops, they lay a whole seat of doubt on her. And then the cop's wife, when they're at the beach party together, mentions that she was called into the cops. And she hadn't told told him. him. So it's like the first big lie of omission between the two. Right. At which point then they, the two of them drive off together and he gets, and he nearly beats someone to death on the side of the road. Someone that he nearly ran off the, uh, off the highway. Yes. But they get in a fight on the side of the road and Humphrey Bogart nearly beats this man to death. And now all of a sudden Laurel Gray's freaking out. Yeah. This is also when the line comes into play that they then recall at the end of the movie, which is just the most... It's a beautiful line, but if you read it the way Bogart reads it and then how Laurel Gray takes it and then how she then repeats the line back to Dixon Steele at the end, it's a really amazing sort of circular um, relationship there. The line is, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. And then Dixon makes Laurel repeat it back to her. And she's terrified when she does this because at the time his arms around her neck. Yeah. He makes her repeat that line back to her at the end of the movie. No. No. In the car, when she's driving, because they switch car, they switch places when they're That's driving. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. She repeats the line back to him, and the line exactly as he says it back to, back to him, and he's got his arm around her neck exactly the way he described how the other woman was strangled. Yeah, that's true. Which she wasn't there for the description of, but nonetheless. No, but it's been a harrowing right. evening for her. Yes. I mean, she's almost died. Yes. And she's almost watched, been a witness to a murder. Yeah. And so things keep escalating from there. Uh, Humphrey Bogart keeps being more and more volatile, where he never actually hits her until right at the end when Laurel Gray's, like, she's like, I can't tell, like, if I tell him I'm going to leave, he might kill me. So I have to sneak away. And so she figures out a way to kind of load stuff in and she's trying to buy a ticket to New York. And so she's packing her suitcase, but Humphrey Bogart comes home early and tracks her down, sees that she's packing a suitcase in order to leave him. And for the first time in the movie, he starts strangling her. And then the phone call comes in and uh, Mildred's boyfriend at the time wrote a confession and I think killed himself. He tried to kill himself. He shot himself, but he lived and then he confessed. And then he confessed. Uh, and so the, the, the captain of the police calls to say, this is great news. And oopsie, we're bad us. Bad us. We put a lot of pressure on you. Hope it didn't cause any trouble. And she was, she says this great line. She's like, well, if you'd been said this two weeks ago, it would have been great. I think she said, if you'd, if you told us this information yesterday, it would have made all the difference. Yeah. Now it doesn't matter. No. And then Humphrey Bogart walks away because the relationship is over and he knows he's a bad person. But there's no acknowledgement that he's going to change. No, but then that's where she changes the line. Because when she's looking out of a balcony, looking at Dixon leave, she says, I lived a few weeks while you loved me. Ooh. So she changes the line to that, and that's the last line of the movie. That is good. It's a very good movie. Like, for people who enjoy noir movies and Humphrey Bogart in general, like, if you're able to track this down, luckily I was able to borrow the DVD from Diane... This movie's worth your time. It's very good. Well, it's really interesting, too, because the book it's based on, because it was based on a book from 47. Hilarious. And, but in that movie, Dixon is a total sociopath who runs around killing people. Oh. That's less interesting. It's unbelievably less interesting. So what happened when they changed the story, they basically took the names of the characters mostly and then 
the, kind of the plot and said, okay, we'll just have fun with this. And yeah. Nicholas Ray did a whole bunch of rewrites while they were making the movie. And and one of the important things about this movie is that we as the audience aren't sure it's him because there are really only two suspects. Dixon Steele, Humphrey Bogart, and this other like kind of non-character boyfriend who, and, ever, who we kind of meet and we're kind of like, oh, this dude seems chill. But the other thing is, is that the movie also plays with our expectations because the police aren't that interested in in the murder mystery. And once the movie establishes there was a murder, they're like, okay, that's fine. There was a murder. And and as opposed to most noirs, which would then revolve around that murder, it then it then moves and revolves around Dixon's relationship with with Laurel and also his volatile behavior and his mental problems. Yeah. One of the things about this movie that felt really interesting is that at the at for the first act of the movie, Dixon Steele is the main character. But then for the rest of the movie, Laurel Gray is the main character. Because she's the character we're with. She's the person we're rooting for and worried for. Like, Dixon Steele starts as the main character and then kind of becomes the villain. Yeah. And that happens during the car ride where they, they then switch positions when they're driving. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's a very visual representation yeah. that now all of a sudden she's at the wheel. She's the one we're following and paying attention to. And Mel Lippman, uh, Humphrey Bogart's agent, has this very interesting line, because Humphrey Bogart later in the movie hits him, and it's like, I knew what I signed up for, this is, like, Dixon Steele's, like, he he wouldn't be Dixon Steele if he was anything else, and it's just all these people around him making excuses for his behavior. Yes. Which is typical abuser kind of mentalities. And has been going on in Hollywood as long as we can remember, and was still going on six months ago and is going on now now. and is going on now like literally i was i listened to the most recent episode of script notes and someone called in and said you know you guys are talking about someone who is who you said was a friend of yours but this person is my boss and they're incredibly abusive and i thought that the host of script notes happened to handle it very poorly um they were like well we don't know about it and we would never talk about someone if we knew they were abuser yes that's the point that that's how a lot of abusers get away with it because people think, well, I would never be friends with an abuser just because someone is friends with you. Doesn't mean they're friends with everyone. They treat everyone well. And unfortunately I think this person was reaching out for help and I don't think it was offered, which I think kind of sucks. Yeah. But this is, yeah. And I think that even outside of Hollywood, it's something that happens. So I think people make a lot of excuses for people if they can get something out of them. Yes. If that person make is money off of them. U- uh, useful. Yes. Which is true, of, especially true of Hollywood. Like all these people who keep getting away with things. Like Kevin Spacey occasionally still finds work. A uh, 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 um, comedian, redhead comedian. Louis C.K. Okay. Like Louis C.K. is still touring. Yeah. And doing really well. Yeah. And it's like people will make excuses for them. Like, I remember when I first told someone about uh, Louis C.K., they were like, no, 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 he's very funny. I like him. It's like, no. No, he takes out his dick and shows people. Yeah. And, like, now he makes jokes about that and getting away with it. Yeah. It's like, now all of a sudden, like, they're even more emboldened and have more power. And that's a problem. So how do we tie that into our now version of In a Lonely Place? How do we remake this movie? Well, I think at least what I did was put a lot more women in power. Okay. Let me rephrase. What's your goal with this movie? My goal in remaking this film, I think, is to yet again bring to the forefront like the Me Too movement and the idea that people in power shouldn't get away with this shit. So are you going to see the Dixon Steele in your version of this movie see consequences for his actions? Yes. 
Okay. Tell me about that. How's that going to happen? I think um, he becomes blacklisted, which is a bad thing to say in Hollywood, but I think he loses his job with the right... I think what happens is he finishes his adaptation of the novel, which is actually really good, but then he gets a story by credit as opposed to the screen screenplay credit. Someone else does a rewrite on it, and all of a sudden he's no longer this in-demand screenwriter. He's a has-been who gets a ticket to a movie. I think we can up the stakes on that. I think we can say, because one of the things that happens is, like, he's so anxious, like, will people like this movie? People never like the movies I write. And then people do like his movie, and theoretically that should put him in a much better mood, but it doesn't, because he's an angry, bitter man. Let's take it and go another way uh, with this, in the same way that um, has happened with a couple of different people in movies, of, let's say that his script gets some very good reactions, and people like it, but then all of this comes forward, and then they throw his version of the script away, and they hire another writer. Yeah, I think that's basically what I was saying. But I, no story by, no credit. Like, they, it's not a rewrite of his script. Oh, they just totally toss Someone it. Someone else just does an adaptation. Okay. And does a straightforward adaptation, so that way none of his work can be used. Correct. Because it's that they, give, they hire a writer who never read his version of the script. They've just read the book. Yeah, which again is one of the things, again, they're making fun of. Not making fun of, but making a point of saying in the movie, because the movie is such a loose adaptation of the book that it was based on. It, I mean, it's not. Yeah. So they, the writer just the writers just went their own merry little way, writing 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 the screenplay and said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll just take the title from the book. That works. Yeah. So that's his version. Yeah. Which people like, and it's still good. But now they hire this. But so the end of the movie is like you can eat like you're ending noir visual is literally his script in a trash can. And that's kind of the slow pan out, fade away metaphor shot that we that we end on. Yeah, I like that. Um, but in terms of the arc of the movie, I think I, I think this movie does a very good job of introducing this character. We realize that he's an angry... Like, there is doubt for us, this whole movie of, did Dixon Steele kill Mildred? And until the very end, we don't know. No. And I think that's important. And I think there needs to be this doubt. And I think the Laurel Gray character needs to believe in him. I think she needs to have the rose-colored glasses of, well, he's nice to me, therefore he's nice. But I think that's what makes this movie so good in that they do that very well. I agree. And I think that is something, when we're remaking this, would need to be kept and treasured within that. Because I think if they, so Because if we can find people who can pull that off... That's an amazing movie. Yeah, because I think I didn't. I ended up not recasting her, but theoretically, there was a woman at the bar who kept approaching Dixon Steele and asking him to go out with her. Like she was still interested in this guy, and he wasn't interested in her, which is very interesting because it sure seemed like she knew he who he was just as much as the agent Mel Lipman knew who he was. But she was okay with it. And she kind of still enjoyed playing with him and making excuses for him to other people. And Mel Lippman, the agent, was so dependent on him that Mel Lippman was literally spying on him, making sure that he was doing work. I think then you go back to the old thing, power in Hollywood. Yeah. And the, and the thing that people are attracted to power in Hollywood and they will suck up to that power. Yeah. it's uh, And it's just really sad. There's a line. This is a line from Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. So I'm paraphrasing. But basically the line is... We know the names that were handed to, uh, that got blacklisted. And we know 
that it was McCartney who uh, uh, blacklisted all those people. McCarthy. McCarthy, excuse me. McCarthy who blacklisted all those people. But we don't know the name of the assistant who handed him the list. We don't know the names of the people who compiled the list. It's all these people who were rungs, rungs up the chain who made excuses and who allowed these things to happen. Who didn't say anything and who kept saying, well, they're not mean to me. Therefore. Yeah. And the sad truth is that I definitely can think of situations where I've been that guy. I definitely have had friends that I've made excuses for that I probably shouldn't have made excuses for. It's a thing that happens. I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people are very good at calling those things out. Some of us aren't and need to be better at it. Yeah. But I think those people need to have a place in this movie of the agent who makes excuses, who covers things up because A, Dixon steals his meal ticket, and it's sometimes it's easier to be miserable than it is to affect change. And the agent's job, quite honestly, is to protect the client. Yeah. Even from themselves. Which, that's a, what agent, a, it agents is. and managers are there to make money off the client. If yes. the client's not productive, then they can't make money. Right. But they, but to the point where they will then protect the client against things that are true and the client should face a responsibility for. Yeah, but then you can also look at um, even taking a client who might be non compass mentis or not available to make so their own decision. non compass mentis, like not not competent mentally. Okay. So, like, like Britney Spears, they used the fact that she had a psychotic breakdown to then gain control of her entire life. That's true. For the last 13 years. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, she's made over $100 million, and they're saying she can't control her own life? Yeah. Yeah. But One again, incident of someone who has been in the public spotlight since they were a child being completely overwhelmed and freaking out, which is, makes total sense, just having their rights stripped away. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's, that's, that, you know, that's the thing of make money at all costs, including that is... the cost to your loved ones or your children. So then if we want to kind of have that in mind, if we want to have this other woman who continually acts, asks out Dixon Steele, why don't we have her also be a victim in the sense that she keeps asking him out because he'd be a good Hollywood match for her and because she keeps getting pushed to ask him out by her caretakers or her agent? Yeah. Something like that. I like that. I like that because then you've also got a foil for Laurel who then has basically stumbled into working with Dix and just happenstance and also right. the fact that she created an alibi for him. But, like, you know, she's like all of a sudden, you know, she's a yeah, she's failed a- Hollywood starlet who all of a sudden is able to get sort of on the inside of what's going on in a very hot script. Yeah, and she is she's his alibi who becomes his girlfriend and ends up be- being his unpaid secretary and intern and, like, housekeeper while he's working on this script. Like, she's basically completely taking care of this guy. Which is otherwise known as an assistant in Hollywood. Correct. Yeah. And she's paid about the same. Yeah. Which is nothing. Exactly. I th- That's still so current. Beyond belief. And literally, you- we can even reference that earlier in the script of Mel Lippman can be asking Dixon Steele... I have a couple more assistant prospects for you. Are you willing to hire an assistant? Are you willing to hire an assistant? No, no, I don't need an assistant. I don't need an assistant. I don't need an assistant. And then Laurel Gray immediately becomes his assistant. And Mel Lippman's like, 
See, she's your assistant. She's not my assistant. And she's, she's my girlfriend. She's my girlfriend. I'm doing all the... She's doing the girlfriend things. An assistant wouldn't. But and it, she's doing all the things that an assistant should have been doing in the first place. Yeah. Because, in Hollywood, an assistant does whatever your boss tells you to do. Yeah. Which is gross. But yeah. to the extent where whatever she'd been doing on her own prior to that is abandoned to take care of his needs. Yes. And that kind of needs to be called out a little it bit It does. More. And I think... I think what makes this movie interesting is that you can call it out within a within a um, modern sense and still keep the framework of this movie, which is so great. Yeah. So what else needs to... Because I kind of feel like driving on the highway... Like, road rage doesn't happen quite like... it. Still, Does road rage still happen quite like this anymore? Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but it happens now when people have guns because... That's true. There was a road rage incident that was in the valley a couple months ago and a kid was shot yeah on the way to school what happened these two cars got into it someone fired a gun and they hit the kid in the back seat damn all right so something like that um, i don't think you get out and fight but i think guns get thrown around yeah i don't want to change the method of mildred being killed because i think that that's especially effective especially when dixon Steele recounts it later to his friend uh and, and the friend's wife However, I do think that when Dixon Steele has the later fight on the highway, I think that he can definitely come back. Instead of picking up a rock to smash the guy's head, I think he can come back to the car, open the glove compartment, and pull out a gun. Yeah. And that, and then Laurel Gray can grab his arm and try and stop him, and that's what finally shakes him out of it. Yeah. And prevents him from literally shooting this guy that he beat up on the side of the road. Exactly. And if the gun goes off and shoots somewhere off in the distance, that works too. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's say she pulls his arm back, the gun fires, and literally her stopping his arm is all that stopped him, the arm from swinging around and, and shooting this guy. I mean, that's similar to what happens in the movie anyway, because she, he picks up the rock and he's ready to go. And she yells at him and says, stop, you're going to kill him. He looks at it and there's some blood on the rock from his hand and he puts the rock down. Right. Yeah. Something that was interesting that happened is this happened in the movie twice is after Mildred was killed, he goes to a florist and he gives the florist a bunch of money to send a bunch of roses to the family. And it's like, oh, well, do you want there to be a card or do you want there to be a note? No, no, no card. Uh, Why? Well, she was just murdered, you see. Oh, cool. Thanks, buddy. And then after there's a news article about this guy that was beaten up on the side of the highway, Dixon Steele once again sends flowers or chocolates or a gift card or something he sends them he sends him a check for like 300 bucks or yeah something. something like that but he does it again under a fake name and mails it off to the guy yeah so it's like so when that happens later we like once again it's like a guilty conscience yes what i would do is i would throw in a third rule of three rule a rule of three and b that felt in the movie as it is now that felt like a red herring yes because that felt like, oh, well, he does this to people. It, it's the whole abuser mentality of, oh, I bring you gifts because I'm so sorry and I'll never do this again. Right. Which, of course, he does in this movie. He does bring Laurel gifts. But I think that should be that. And I feel like if he's sending gifts, I think he should... Mildred is ambiguous. This dude on the side of the highway was definitely his fault. I think there should be a third that is definitely not his fault. Like, I need the, I think there should be some sort of accident, so that way it's a little bit more ambiguous of, is this just something he does? Is this something where he feels guilty? Because otherwise, it's just, why was he sending the gifts to Mildred? 
Actually, I will one up you. I will actually put a proposal to you on that to Please. sort of encompass that with your ending of the script in the in the uh, trash can. Okay. Laurel has a bunch of gorgeous flowers, and the card says from Dix, and he panned down, and there's the script in the trash. Ah, uh, okay. So that way he has sent flowers to her. Okay. Why would she be throwing his script away? Well, well, she handed a, she handed his script to the agent. So maybe she's in the agent's office or something like that. And the agent's like, oh, these are for you. These came for you. Yeah. Okay. And then they look in the garbage and there's the script. The yes. script's in the garbage. Okay. That, I like that more. Yeah. But um, that way it's, it's, you don't know if Mildred was his fault. You know the other guy was his fault, and you absolutely know he did something to Laurel. Yeah. In each case, he sends a gift of yeah. whoop, whoopsie. Of, my bad. I will never do this again. Uh, please forgive me. Please take me back. And I think that also adds to the whole abuser, abusey mentality and yes. whether or not she goes back to him or not. Yeah, because I, I think that's very much one of the things of this movie is he walks away and we presume he's walking away for good. Whereas in reality, he'd probably try to go back. He's like, I've changed. Like a yeah. month later, he goes back. He's like, take me back, baby. It's it's going to be different this time. And, you know, it's Dixon. It's Bogart saying it. You probably might take him back. That Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, which is like the cycle of abuse thing that happens. Yeah. What else do we need to do to kind of like more modernize this? Because you said you want you wanted to put a lot more uh, female empowerment in this movie. Yeah. Like, within my, my casting, I made most of the police officer, all of the police officers, females. Oh, great. Okay. So I did that. Because I think they are the authority figures within the movie. Yes. And they are not the enablers. Okay. And they're trying to find the truth. Yeah. I was a little distracted. So I, went, I, wanted, I wanted to do that on a female, on a, on a, on a female view. Okay. Um, so then in that case, is the friend... I mean, he still needs to have a male friend uh, mm. that he's making apologies and exceptions to, I was thinking. Because, I mean, I suppose he could have a female friend who makes excuses and is like, no, I never believed that he was a bad guy. I guess that's true. Yeah, because they're army buddies. That's so you true. would need someone who's about the same age of him and they serve together in, like, say, Afghanistan. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Uh, and then... She can be married uh, to whomever. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm on board with that. That's fair. I will definitely means that you'll be getting both of these, but you know what? I'm cool with it. Yeah. I, I think you're right that I think we need more female perspectives and different. I don't want to put in different forms of abuse because one of the things that I think makes this interesting is that it feels very real. It feels like, like this is a relationship we could see. Uh, we can see Laurel finding herself in. And also, it feels very current. I mean, what's interesting about this movie, at least to me, and I don't know if you felt the same thing, was it didn't feel like a film from the 50s. I mean, it does because of the whole look and stuff. Sure. But in but terms of, like, the psychological issues and the issues they bring up, it was very modern. I agree with that. So I don't just know if a lot of that needs to be tweaked, but I think a lot of the psychological issues need to be kept. Yeah, I kind of agree. I, I, I do think that it sort of... The unfortunate thing about the story is that it is evergreen. This still happens to women and men all over the place. Yeah. It happens to, to people. There are often abusers who are powerful and abuse that power. Yes. And it's bad. It's very bad. It's <laughs> very bad. What else do we need to do? 
I think, um, obviously we modernize it so they served in Afghanistan yes, um, and the cars and stuff. But I also think the way that Laurel and Dixon interact needs to change a bit. Tell me. Because Dixon, the way he does it is he writes his script in longhand and then Laurel types, types it, it, up. it up. Yeah, which is not at something anyone will do. Anymore. Yeah. At all. So I think we need to give her a little bit of a different role in that. However, she's still the assistant, still with him daily. So maybe she is a writer's assistant or she's trying to... um... I mean, if you want to make it simple, if she's the writer's assistant, if she's taking over, like, she's going through and editing the script. She's cleaning it up. She's doing all of the... Something we can even have is... She's going in, she's editing, she's fixing the punctuation, she's adjusting the spacing and the lines and everything. And then at some point, she thought of a really good joke and she put it in. And then at some point, the agent can compliment that joke and say it was very funny. And Dixon then gets obviously mad. And he gets furious because I don't have that joke in my script. That joke isn't in my script. Because he gets mad at her in the film because she writes coverage for it. Right. And for those of you that don't know, coverage is basically a summary of the script. Yes. And in this version, she put in a joke because she was editing the script and she fixes a joke or she adjusts the wording and he's furious with her that that wasn't your job. You weren't supposed to do that. This is my work. I'm a genius. Oh, that, yeah, he messes with her work. She messes with his words. Yeah. And for a writer, that's tantamount to, you know, right. destroying his vision. And, of course, it's like it still stays true to, like, the goal of the original line, but she just cleaned it up, which was literally the job she was hired to do. Yeah. And... Oh, can't have that. That's a huge fight. Yes. And that can be something, in addition to getting his food and sent, and doing his laundry and this and cleaning up the place. Right. I don't think they should have a housekeeper. I did recast the housekeeper just because I you thought it might be... More people I, I, I just thought the housekeeper might be funny and sort of like comic relief. It, she's comic relief in the original movie in that she encourages the two of them to get married and go on a honeymoon so that she can finally vacuum both their apartments. Right, but she also sort of is doing like a massage to Laurel at some point. Is that who was doing I that? I think so. I think Because so. I thought that? that was just some other friend. Oh, maybe it was. I, I, always, I always get confused on that one. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Either way, either way, what I was just thinking was if we keep the housekeeper in and we don't have to, is that then you've got a little bit of relief from the ever-present darkness that we're bringing onto this film. Unless we, we just want to keep going down the rabbit hole, we've got a little bit of breathing space for the audience. What the original movie does, the kind of relief it gives us, is it kind of makes Mel Lipman that comedic relief. And it's one of those things where you go back and think about it, and you think about what his role was and what he was doing, and you think, oh wow, that actually wasn't really very funny. That was kind of messed up. I think that's also one of the things the movie does very well. Like, he's stalking them, and he's sticking his head in the window, and she's like, what are you doing? Mel, what are you doing? Bad boy. And he's stalking them and making excuses for bad behavior. Yeah. Which, of course, you realize after the fact, especially when at the end, Dixon Steele clocks him, and Mel makes an excuse and says, we're good. When I I think if we're going to be having someone provide levity, I think we're kind of going to need to reveal that that levity is itself tainted. Perfect. I love that. And I think we kind of know what we're doing with Mel. So mm-hmm. how are you tainting the levity of the housekeeper? I'll actually give that to you. I don't think we need the housekeeper. Well, it, no, let, I, let's I think say I mean, we have the housekeeper. Let's say she's making the jokes. Because again, it was, it, because it's a movie from this era, it's almost exclusively white people. And this is a white housekeeper. And theoretically, we would have, uh, if we're sticking true to stereotypes, a Hispanic housekeeper. Um, we can literally have, it, they can be friendly, they can be friendly. And then at the end, when... Mel is really upset as he can 
threaten to call ice on her. It's like, I don't have time for your jokes. Make one more joke and I'll call ice. Or the housekeeper is used for levity, 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 but then she's also cleaning blood out of his shirts and off of it, off of his sheets. You know, she's cleaning up the blood that he leaves behind when he beats someone to a pulp. Yeah, and she's still coming in and still making... That's, that's better than mine. <laughs> it's it a little darker. It's a little darker, but it's also one of those things where it's... it's I Those moments where if you pay closer attention, then you see the detail. And I think yeah. that's better. Mine's really direct and not good. Yours is, oh... And she's still making the jokes and seeing it. It's like, well, da-da, joke about having to use some extra bleach for this one. And you two should definitely still get together. Oh, man. I don't know about that. No, but she does. Yeah, she and does And that do makes that. it, and again, that goes back into what you want to do, which is still encourage, is people encouraging, putting up with the bad behavior in order to encourage someone to create something they can make money with. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And she's going to encourage them because, A, they're her bosses. It's a client. Got to keep the client happy. And she's making money from them. Yeah, that's true. And she's dependent on them. And I think that's is that's the whole thing, is dependency on another person. And let's make it even more tainted where every time she has to clean blood off something, he gives her a tip. And we can even have moments where he hands her, oh, and here here's extra ten, an extra $10 for you. Oh, thank you. Knowing and, that she's got a pile of something. That can happen at the beginning of the movie. That can happen sometime in the middle of the movie, the end of the movie. And we can then go back and realize, oh, he's paying her extra to clean up the blood. Yeah. I like that a lot. And we don't know what that is the first two times it happens, but the third time we do, and then we realize what it is the first two times. Yeah. I like that a lot. Okay. All right. We can keep the housekeeper. Okay. We can keep it. Good. <laughs> I like her. What else do we need? <sighs> I don't know if we need much else. I mean, this isn't one of those ones where we're going to remake it into a total, like, comic, yeah, comedic th- movie. Th- we're not burning this down and, and rebuilding. We, we like the bones, the structure, the muscles of this. Yeah. It's just a modern take and uh, uh, hanging a lantern on a couple of things and acknowledging that these things aren't okay and that these sorts of people deserve punishment. Yes. And that's kind of it. That's the big difference. It's an acknowledgement that this is happens, it's not okay, this we need to stop accepting this kind of behavior and this and this is what should happen to this sort of person. Agreed. If they shouldn't be allowed to work, why continue giving work to the people who are the abusers when there's so many other very talented people? Then I'm just actually going to throw out, throw out a question to you. And again, I like our ending, but it's just a question. One of the things that makes this, one of the things that makes the, the original version so interesting is that it's very ambiguous ending. Yes. Do we want to have it as definite as the script in the in the in the trash? Because I think I think we do. I'm going to say this. I think we do because I think you do want to show punishment in our version. Okay. If you want to have an ambiguous ending, let's take something else that we have. I do like the because I think the script in the trash is what Hollywood should be doing. Yes. But it doesn't speak to what Laurel is doing. Yeah. And I think what can happen is if you want to have those flowers, the flowers can show up. She can look at the card. And look at the card, and look at the card. And then look credit. out her window. Credits. Okay. So that way we don't know what she's going to do now that she got these flowers. Okay, I like that. That way you get to have your ambiguity. He, there's still the punishment from Hollywood. There's still this person should not be working anymore. Right. But there's still the cycle of abuse, and we're not sure that it was broken. Right, I like that. Okay? Yeah. All right. I like that a lot. Cool. Not I like that I like it, but I think it's yeah, a really yeah. cool thing. Yeah, yeah. 
It's tough. This is a hard. This is, movie. This is a hard movie. This, this is this is one of the tougher ones I've given you. It is because normally everything I do is fun and action and hey, what kind of crazy thing we can do? This is not a fun movie, but it's gorgeous. It's yeah, it's it's good, but it's not fun. No, those are different. Yeah, makes um, you think. It, yes, but I think that means it's time for us to talk about casting. Okay. Dueling genre. And obviously we have to start with Dixon Steele. Absolutely. And how do you replace Bogart? You don't. You don't, but I feel feel like there are modern actors who are kind of able to handle like, hey, I'm a fun guy. Everything's going to be great. And then get really dark. And for me, I think that that's really apparent with some of the roles this guy has done. For example, when he's in Split and when he was in Atonement and X-Men First Class. James McAvoy? And wouldn't you know it? He was also in Wanted, that other movie we talked about. Yes, James McAvoy. I think that he would be a really good... He's also a little bit he? younger. Because um, I don't want... Well, no, actually, I did keep the age difference. You kept a 20-year age I difference? I kept a 20-year age difference. That's a whole other... Ca- that's a, that... No, but that, I think that's also part of it. It is, but that's part of it then. I don't... Like, we have, we're doing so much else that I don't think we need that. Okay. James McAvoy is 42. Actually, then we're not that much off. Okay. With who I've got for the for Laurel. All right. We're my, not that much off at all. My Laurel Gray is mid-30s. Okay, my Laurel's 25. Yeah, I did not do that. I did that. Because uh, Laurel is someone who's tried to have a career and it didn't work out. And 25, you can't have tried to have a career and it didn't work out by the time you're 25. If you're a starlet in Hollywood, yeah, that can happen. It can. But for my purposes, I cast someone mid-30s. But I'm sorry, who did you have for Dixon Steele? I had uh, Killian Murphy. Okay. Why did you have... I mean, we both cast British actors. We did. Or, I, I uh, went a really... James, James McAvoy is Scottish, but you know what I mean. Yeah, well, so is Killian. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, um, that, I, that is actually very funny. Yeah. I cast him because I think he's he's got... He's a very flexible actor. He's very um, striking. You know, he looks very striking. I think he's got a very unassuming... Unassuming, like, physique. Yeah. So you don't necessarily think that this guy can create that amount of violence. Killian Murphy's Irish, James McAvoy's Scottish. Oh, sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize, Killian Murphy. You're Irish. But yes, I agree with all that. Yeah, so that's why I, that's why I picked him. Interesting. Who'd you have for Laurel Gray? Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. Those eyes. Well, we definitely can't have Anya Taylor-Joy and uh, James McAvoy paired together because that's literally the movie split. But... Killian Murphy and Anya Taylor-Joy, you can. Maybe you could do that. that. But who did I, you cast for I Laurel? I don't love that age difference. That is a little extreme for me. And then I think we're making... I, I think that distracts from the point we're trying to make. Because then I okay. think it's a whole other point. Okay. My Laurel Gray is Brenda Song. Who is... Uh, she uh, She is previously a, a, a Disney star. Like, she was in Wendy Wu, Homecoming Warrior. But she was also in Social Network. She was the that girlfriend who lit stuff on fire. Oh, Okay. I like her. Yeah, I like her yeah. a lot too. And she's in her thirties. She's thirty-three. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah. I thought Brenda. So Brenda Song, thirty-three, paired with the forty-two-year-old James McAvoy, I thought was kind of a pairing that worked for me in terms of their age difference. I think that she's also someone who, especially coming from the Disney School of Acting, can bring a lot of light. But we also know she can go very, very dark. But then she's also got the past to her because then she's also been in the studio system and been working in Hollywood for years. And all of a sudden she finds herself as an adult and she doesn't have work. Which is kind of true of Brenda Song because we don't see her that much anymore. She was a very popular Disney actress. But now that she's in her 30s, she's doing voice acting stuff. Like she happens to be the voice actress on uh, the lead on Amphibia. And she's great. 
but we don't see her as much. Right. I like her. I like her a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would still push for James McAvoy just because I, I like him, but I think either one of them would work. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. Okay. I think you're going to get a lot more than me just because of all the different things we've said. But just in case you don't, we'll keep that because I think either one would work in this right. particular role. Right. So let's talk about Mildred. Oh, yeah. I had great with her. I had... Mildred I make a lot younger. Mildred I make 25. Mildred, I actually don't, I, I think the actress is either in her late 20s or early 30s, but you she's made Mildred fit. older. I don't remember, I don't know how old this actress is. I didn't actually look. My actress is 26. Okay. I picked Michaela Cole. Who's Michaela Cole? I actually don't she know who was that a, is. She's a incredible British writer and actress. Um, she was in I May Destroy You. Okay. But she's also done like a lot of humorous things. And she can do dark and she can do humor. And I think she's for a small, for a role in which you have to captivate and keep the audience attention on you for that entire sequence. She's it. She's phenomenal. Yeah. She, I was misspelling her name entirely. She's 33. Okay. So that's a little older. Yes. I cast one of the Stranger Things kids. I cast Nat- uh, Natalia Dyer. She's one of the girlfriends? I think so. Or like the big sister or something? I'm not 100% positive. Okay. She was on Stranger Things. I don't think, I guess she was not one of the Stranger Things kids. No. But that's kind of like the big thing she's done. Uh, It's like the only thing she's done. So like I was going for someone who kind of would be not really well known. I think. So she's not the hat check girl, but she's the, uh, she's the um, male, she's, she's the, she's the mailroom chick. From the agency. Yeah. Sorry, not chick, but she's a mailroom woman from the agency and she's got the book. Yeah. That, and we, she's, didn't, we didn't talk about that, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. She's from the agency. And so like, you want someone who's kind of has like the young internship who mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily know to not go home with a random uh, guy to give him notes on his book kind of thing. And I feel like Michaela Cole would know better than to go to a random dude's home. But you know what? I'm actually going to see if we can switch this. I think... Just because I think she can pull it off and really be zany, Anya Taylor-Joy for that. That I will give you. Okay. Yes, I agree with that. Especially because we definitely won't expect her to be killed. Right. I agree with that. I think that's correct casting. Yeah. Especially because she'll be so enthusiastic and happy and it's like, oh my gosh, Anya Taylor-Joy is going to be like in this movie, opposite whoever we have. This is great. She was killed? Yeah. And like literally we can have her in all the ads because it's Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. But the other thing that also makes it interesting is that she can just have so much fun with that sequence. Absolutely. She can just go because to town on it. Mildred is the breakout from this movie. Yes. She's just wonderful. And it's devastating when she's killed because we all immediately love her. Yes. So I think, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Anya Taylor-Joy for that role is perfect. I don't have uh, Brub Nikolai's spouse, but you cast both Brub Nikolai and Captain Lochner as women. Yes. So I'm going to tell you who I have for both of them, but okay. we're definitely going to go with both of yours. Not necessarily. All right, fair enough. Then we'll go one at a time. Yeah. Um, for Brub Nikolai, which is the friend who's around the same age, who was in the army, served in Afghanistan with Dixon Steele, um, I went with the actor Columbus Short. He was on Scandal. He was in The Losers. He was in Stomp the Yard. Okay. He's an American actor, choreographer, dancer, and rapper. He choreographed Britney Spears' Onyx Hotel Tour and worked with blah, 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 blah. But he's also, you know, an actor. Okay. Fun, but can play detective. Mm-hmm. I just thought he was uh, a fun choice. Okay, and he's 38. Yes. Okay. So See? he would be someone who would answer to a 42 or a 45-year-old in the army. Like, they would be his commanding officer. Right. Which is what the relationship was in um, in A Lonely Place. Yeah. 
So that's my uh, suggestion for Brub Nikolai. Who did you have? Charlie's Throne. Because I needed someone who could like actually be an ex-soldier from Afghanistan who kicked ass, who followed orders, and is now a detective. Would that be distracting? We've got Anya Taylor. If we have Anya Taylor Joy coming in and James McAvoy, right? But that's stunt casting. Like we're we're not expecting like James McAvoy is obviously the lead, and Anya Taylor Joy we're not expecting to be killed. Charlize Theron is just like the friend kind of over on the side, and we're like, well, why isn't uh, Dixon Steele asking out uh, Charlize Theron because she's married? Right, but like yeah. still, like whenever Charlize Theron is in a movie, she's kind of in charge. Okay. I'll th- uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But I'm not going to... No final decisions. Who did you have for the captain? Uh, for the captain, I put um, <laughs> Angela Bassett. Okay. Why'd you have Angela Bassett? Because she's amazing. No. Angela Bassett needs to be given every role possible. She is just a stellar actor. She's like... Viol- she's just... She's one of those women actors, when you look at them, you can't take your eyes off of them. Agreed. And I think in terms of authority, she just sort of exudes, 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 exudes authority and just gravitas. I agree with that. My uh, role for the captain was Michael Kenneth Williams, who has been in The Wire. He was in Twelve Years a Slave. He was in Boardwalk Empire. Um, but I think Angela Bassett's the right way to go for this. Okay. So I would potentially have Angela Bassett as the captain, and then Columbus Short as the friend. I like that. I like that. Especially age-wise, it works. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, did you cast the spouse? I did, but it doesn't work with who we're keeping now. Why? Because she's too old. I cast a 45-year-old woman as the spouse. Viola Davis. As the spouse? Yeah. Okay. Because you needed someone who... I, I think I wanted to see, I guess, when I was thinking of this movie, I was thinking all the women, all the, like, the women's roles get amped up. Yes, So the spouse isn't just a spouse who sits around and decorates with homemade curtains. Who doesn't, like, play the victim in when uh, 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 Humphrey Bogart is suggesting how she died and then doesn't spill the beans. <laughs> what a whoopsie. Yeah. So uh, I, wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to put female actors in the roles who actually, when you look at them, you know they're not going to take any shit. Okay. At least in positions of, like, the detectives. So the you people. were going to have Charlize Theron married to Viola Davis? Uh-huh. That's a choice. Yeah. Let's just keep let's just keep Viola Davis uh, there anyway. Okay. Why not? Okay. Who uh, did you put in well, for... Well, especially because this can be indicative of that kind of age difference in a relationship and one that works. One okay. One that is, like, I... One of my big things on this podcast is trying to get a little bit uh, less having 60-year-olds dating 20-year-olds kind of things in movies. This is a 10-year age difference, which is a lot. And as long as it's not an abuse of power, which in this movie it is, I I don't have a problem with that. Um, But there's also, I know people who are in relationships with that big of an age Mm -hmm. difference. My parents are six years apart. Right. Which is less, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with having this kind of relationship, especially if we kind of see like, oh, this is that kind of relationship when it works. Okay, perfect. Absolutely. Uh, did you cast the, uh, drunken actor friend? I did not. I did. Oh, what was that character's name? Lloyd Barnes. Who did you have for Lloyd Barnes? Kurt Russell. Great. Kurt Russell will be playing drunk? Drunk. Drunk. Will he be recognizable as Kurt Russell? 
put, you know, if he's got like sort of like some. Uh... I mean, if he if he has the Kurt Russell hair, he's recognizable as Kurt Russell. If you literally give him any other hairstyle, I think he won't be, and I think that's funny. Yeah, but I think it'd be funny to have Kurt Russell playing a washed up drunk actor. Yeah, that's exactly why I put him in there. Yeah, that is stunt casting. I also... But I think that'll be, like, the end of distracting A-listers where they will distract from the rest of the movie. Yeah, except for the agent. Who'd you put for the agent? I have Jonathan Price as the... I, so, I, my original thought for the agent was to have Henry Winkler. Okay. It's kind of funny, but I think at the end of the day, we've seen him do that role. If it's Henry Winkler, we've seen him on Parks and Rec. We kind of know what he's going to do with this role. I went with Jonathan Price, who is kind of the, the head priest from Game of Thrones. Yeah. He's also in the Two Popes. He's been an act- he's been around for a while. He's no, he, never he's dies. a phenomenal actor. He's a and phenomenal he's a actor, fantastic actor who I think can play kind of that like the the goofy. Uh, I'm just here to be supportive. But I also wanted like a sense of like kind of slimy, you know, kind of like an agent who kind of also has a bit of sleaze to it. Okay, so I cast Hugh Grant. Oh, kind of playing the role he played in um, Death to 2020. Yeah. That's a that's a clever idea. Also, because Hugh Grant does sleazy very well. Yes, that's true, because he's kind of a slimy guy. Yeah. I'm going to say let's stick with... You want to stick with Price? Let's stick with I Jonathan like him. Price. I like him a lot. Partly because you see Hugh Grant, no matter who he's playing, you're like, he'll be fine. And it's Hugh Grant. Yeah. You don't necessarily, at this point, divorce the actor from the role. Right. With and with Jonathan Price, we could see him being completely dependent on Dixon Steele. Done. And that, and so I think that would make it a little bit more important. Absolutely. That's it in terms of acting roles that I have. Yeah. Uh, you, who did you have for the housekeeper? It was total stunt casting. Who'd you I'm have? Sorry, Diane? I'm sorry. <laughs> I had fun with this one. I you was like, should. I'm I was like, this is a fun. great movie. Who would want to be in this film? Well, remember, it's not a fun movie. But, I know, but, but yes. I mean, it's a good script. I think it would draw a lot of people to it. Who'd you cast? Olivia Coleman. No. Okay, I know, but we can't have her. <laughs> Okay, again, wrong. The way you described the the, uh, the housemaid was actually perfect as a, as a Hispanic woman who's afraid of ice, who... Right, had, but we're, we're, yeah. we're not going to do that joke. That was no. a bad joke. Your take on it was better. Right, um, but I, I still also think that, um, that I picked the wrong person. Yeah. I think we can do better, but yes. I don't know who, though. No, we can come back to that. Yeah. As it happens right now, I have three people and you have four. So that means I'm taking Dixon Steele. Okay. That's fine. You got, you got Mildred, you got the captain and you got <laughs> Mrs. Nikolai and Lloyd. That's great. Hey, it worked out. Cool. That brings us to our writer and our director. I have separate writer director. Do you have a hyphenate? No, I have a hyphenate. You, I have a hyphenate. So you have one person for both. Yes. Okay. So let me tell you about my writer. You'll tell me about your hyphenate. Then I'll tell you about my director. Okay. So my writer has directed, but in this case, I have him just writing because I wanted to have a female director. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a backup, but, uh, so my writer is Drew Goddard. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So Bad Times at the El Royale. He's done The Marsh. And he's Cabin done in Daredevil, the Devil, Cabin in the Woods. And like, let's not forget Buffy. Yeah. Like he is a writer and he can do fun with purpose and darkness and meaning. Yeah. And I think that's important. And I think that's a sort of kind of gravitas and like twist to the sort of thing that we want for this. I'm very interested to see who you have instead. But the that that's kind of who I thought because it, it, it marry the, the lightness with the secretly covering up the darkness. Okay. Especially because he did a noir recently with Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes, he did. Noir-ish. Noir-ish. Yeah. Uh, but who did you have as your hyphenate? Emerald Fennell. 
Emerald Fennell. She did Promising Young Woman. She was Academy Award nominated for it. I think she won Best Screenplay this year. Oh, cool. And she can do dark. Cool. What else has she done other than... Pretty much Promising Young Woman. It's, it's, I think that's her first mainstream film that came out. She's also worked on The Crown, The Danish Girl, Call the Midwife. I mean, this picture of her sure shows her holding an Oscar. Yep, she won for Best Original Screenplay for Promising Young Woman. I mean, that's strong argument. And she got nominated for Best Picture for Promising Young Woman, as well as Best Director for Promising Young Woman. Yeah. She's an executive producer on Killing Eve, mm-hmm. uh, but she's she, uh, she was a writer on Drifters, so she goes back and forth between doing actory things and writery things. Yes. I agree. I think that that is a better choice for writer. I would actually also nominate her for director. Right, that's director. right. I'm sorry. She's your hyphenate. Yes, yeah, she's I'm sorry. my hyphenate. I went with a little bit less well-known. I mean, <laughs> your person won an Oscar. I I may just be boned. But Promising Young Woman, if you haven't seen it, is worth the watch. It is very tense. Um, it plays on your expectations a lot and plays on the whole concept of like sort of the revenge. Yeah, of course. Film. Like That is the right thing. That's probably the right way to go for us, then. We might end up doing that. So my director, like I said, lesser well-known. She's, she's directed different episodes of television. Like, she's directed episodes of Umbrella Academy, Westworld, Ozark, but also Veronica Mars and okay. Queen Sugar. Um, this director's name is Amanda Marsalis. Okay. There was a list that came out recently of 25 female directors that Ava DuVernay wants people to know about because she's like, well, if there's all these people going around who don't know about female directors, here's 25 of them that are great. Yeah. So I went through that list and I found several people who I thought would work. Like my backup was a a director named Kat Candler um, who worked on Bad Moms, 13 Reasons Why, Sorry for Your Loss, Dirty John. Um, But I ended up going with Amanda Marsalis because of the selection of things she's worked on. And I was trying to like, hey, this is the sort of thing where you work with a really good writer Mm -hmm. and then you have the director come in and kind of like take this strong script and do their take on it. I think Emerald uh, Fennell is probably the way to go as the hyphenate to do both, write and direct. But I thought it was important to say their name. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Like we should always say our choices on this because I think they're great. Yeah. What makes, I think, Emerald a really interesting choice is that I think she would be able to get the darkness of the script and actually also bring in some of the humor. And I think... And she's she's a visionary. She's a visionary. I think one of the things that made this movie so so striking is that Nicholas Ray is incredible. He's an amazing director. Well, the other thing I was going to say is that as someone who was previously a young woman actress in Hollywood... I think she's really going to be able to write Laurel Gray very well mm-hmm. and speak to that and and understand what was going on there. Yeah. And I, I think that's important. I, th- I think that's why Emerald Fennell is probably the right way to go. Oh. Cool. As both writer and director. So let's do that. Okay. Which is it. Which is, that's our movie. So now let's talk about In a Modern Lonely Place. Okay. Dixon Steele is going to be played by James McAvoy. Laurel Gray will be Brenda Song. Mildred Atkinson will be Anya Taylor-Joy. Brub Nikolai will be Columbus Short, and he'll be married to Viola Davis. Captain Lochner will be Angela Bassett. Mel Lipman, the agent, will be Jonathan Price. Lloyd Barnes, the drunken actor, will be Kurt Russell, and we'll find someone to be the housekeeper. Yeah. All of this will be written and directed by Emerald Fennell. That is our modern take on In a Lonely Place. Diane, will you go see this movie? Absolutely. Wonderful. Would you see it, Sam? I'd see it if I had some people to watch it with. Okay, we definitely will come with you. Good. Then yeah, I'm down. All right, excellent. 
Uh, then yeah, that's it. We recorded a podcast. Thank you very much for being my guest again. Diane, do you have social medias or anything you want people to follow or plug sure. or all those sorts of things? I'm on Twitter at, at, at Dibster. Spell it. D-I-B-S-T-E-R. Great. And that's mostly where I'm on. Cool. That's perfect. Um, if you're interested in following me, I'm at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H, on Twitter or on Instagram or Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Ideal Remake or join us on Facebook, Ideal Remake or Ideal Remake Podcast. Or if you're interested in hearing me be a guest on a bunch of other shows, you can listen to any of the other shows. Well, not any. I'm not on all of them yet, but you get the idea. On the Dueling Genre Network or join the Dueling Genre Patreon to get Dueling Genre Tonight or Dueling Genre Versus or all these other Patreon-exclusive shows that get put out and are super fun to be a part of and I would hope, therefore, also to listen to. Uh, Just for the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you too can join the Dueling Genre Patreon. Um... But yeah, we did it. We remade Humphrey Bogart the movie from 1950 in a lonely place. I love it. The movie everyone was asking for. I well, hey, I mean they weren't asking for Ronin until you knew they were. That's true. And in both times these are movies I didn't know existed until you brought them to my t- same with Hackers too. Wanted I knew about. Yeah. And these are movies that I'm vi- like are now in my consciousness and I'm aware of and I think I'm better off knowing about them. So thank you, Diane, for continuing to broaden my uh, cinematic experience and cinematic knowledge. High five. High five. So we'll end, as we always do, with Diane. What is your favorite quote from the movie In a Lonely Place? I think it's honestly the line I read out to you before. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. And is your favorite version the version he says or the version she says at the end? The one she says at the end where she changes it to, I lived a few weeks while you loved me. Good. I like it. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome.